You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Monday, April the 11th. It's bright here in TW11 this morning and the weather is warming up significantly this week. And would you believe it? We're already into the classic trials here in the UK with the Craven and the Greenham this week. More chat of that later in the show. But of course, we must start by reflecting on a memorable running of the Randox Grand National. David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, is with me this morning to reflect upon it all the highs and lows that have come out of the world's most famous steeplechase, one of the world's most famous horse races. Dave, from your perspective, how was the Grand National 2022? Yeah, I think it was a, a, a national of extreme highs and lows, if I'm honest, Nick. Um, the highs, of course, Noble Yates, the horse that was the final mount of the uh, the amateur rider Sam Whaley Cohen, the, the, the great unpaid cavalier of the last few years, six times he had won over the Grand National Fences and this was going to be his final attempt at a seventh and of course it came off a, a horse that his father Robert had bought after Noble Yates had run at Weatherby in February. He ran at the Cheltenham Festival. He was a 50 to 1 shot. And so all those ingredients throw in the fact, of course, that he was trained by Emmett Mullins, nephew of Willie, and was a first runner in the Randox Grand National for the trainer. And those were all ingredients that gave us a, 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 a very good story to serve up in the aftermath of the race. OK, let's just concentrate a little bit more on the on the story of the winner, Noble Yates. Um, uh, the retirement of Sam Whaley Cohen, first of all, he, he has given an awful lot to, to the sport. The sport's given an awful lot back to him. Why do you think uh, people have warmed to him so much over the years? Well, from a, from a, a journalist perspective, and I, I'm sure you feel the same as me, um, he's been a, a delight to interview over... Uh, the last couple of decades, he's he's extremely eloquent in that respect. You you know that when he crosses the line on a winning horse, that the post race interview is going to be interesting. It's going to be instructive. There's going to be plenty of it uh, in my trade. That means that you have to uh, type in the quotes pretty quickly in order to meet your deadline. You're not going to use all of them, but when you pick the pearls out of what Sam Whaley Cohen said afterwards, you've got a, a, a really good illustration of the um of the, the the human interest aspect of the story and also how it came about people have rightly made the point that you know his father buys the horses and he has a, a big budget to to buy those horses but th- there is something sort of deeply touching about the father-son bond and that, that was something that was very much played out in the immediate aftermath of the race i think that that's something though that i also strangely think of as a positive in the fact that yes Robert Whaley Cohen is a, ve- a very wealthy man and he buys these horses specifically for his son to ride in races. Well, you, you could 
infer from what I've just said, well, that just sounds like a, a sort of spoilt little rich kid who rides the horses that his father buys. However, there is, there's much more to it than that. Obviously, the, the relationship with the two, um, Robert Whaley Cohen, he said, took some stick around the, the, the long run uh, career in you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, um, whereby he said, I, I used to get nasty messages from people who said put a professional jockey on this horse um sam whaley cohen it seems says said to his father why don't you put a professional jockey on this horse because you know he's obviously better than the than the the handicappers that that he was used to riding um he thanked his father after the race saying that you know never once has uh, he wavered in his support for me um, he, he admitted afterwards that he'd had huge opportunities. He'd been the, the beneficiary of some great chances to ride in races that otherwise he wouldn't have done as a direct result of his father being able to buy these horses. So it's, it's not as if, you know, we, we're apt to paint Sam Whaley Cohen as an amateur rider sort of in name only, you know, that his skills are such that he could rank with the professionals uh, that ride day in, day out. But he was, uh, he was modest, but not falsely modest in that respect. You know, he, he, he said, look, I'm here because my father buys the horses. I know that I've been given some great opportunities and I want to make the most of them. There is of course another tragic element to this um story and that is that his brother thomas passed away after a, a very long fight against bone cancer in 2004 and it was when sam started riding after that i think it was caterino that was the first uh, big name that that he'd ridden over the, the to victory uh, over the national fences that he said that 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 brought the family together after uh, the passing of, of Thomas in 2004 and that they were able to sort of take a step forward as a family and go on from there. Um, he always rides with his late brother's initials stitched into his saddle. Uh, his father was wearing a, a, a bracelet on Saturday, again, that, that bore Thomas's initials and also another one of those sort of rather hippie-ish friendship bracelets that people used to wear uh, 15 or so years ago in the, the brown and orange colours, but also interwoven in that was a bit of long run's tale too. So, you know, th this is, a, um, this is a, a family story that when we look at every aspect of it is not all just a, a, a story of a... Of a a, a rich family of huge privilege. There are some some very dark times and some tragic times in there too. And as a whole, just looking at it in the round, I think it's a, a hugely a hugely warming story. And let's not forget trainer Emmett Mullins and the part that that he played, this huge part that he's played in in getting a horse just seven years old to win the Grand National. A year ago, this horse had run in a couple of bumpers and a maiden hurdle. Just a year ago, and now here he is winning the Grand National in his novice chase season. It's an amazing plan, beautifully executed. 32-year-old trainer. Um, Willie Mullins is not the only Mullins in town, as if we ever thought he was. No, we know very well that he's not. Yeah, some, some very interesting aspects to this. Perhaps this is 
I wonder to what extent, to what extent, this is a, um, a a lesson to trainers who think, well, it's it, you know, we're a bit, we're a, a year early with this horse. Perhaps we ought to wait and see. For, for, to think that a little over a year ago, this horse was contesting races without obstacles, and now he's won over the race that serves up the most famous obstacles in the world is really something to ponder. Let's talk about the two fatalities that came out of the Grand National. Very sadly. We lost Discorama and Eclair Surf, uh, Dave. And any time there is a fatality in this race, the race, quite rightly, will be will be scrutinised. And Aintree and the Jockey Club are always keen to make sure that the race is still the same spectacle, but it is as, as safe as possible for horse and rider. Would you advocate at this stage looking at any further changes to the race conditions. Lee Motta said our pod colleague and senior writer from the Racing Posters suggested they might look again at the, the safety limit for number of runners and maybe bring it from 40 down to 30. That's, that's something that will probably do the rounds in the next few days. Yeah, I think it probably will do. Instinctively, I'm against doing that. I think that the, you know, it, it is the spectacle because of the size of the field. Um, if there's one thing that I would be inclined to look at what less than 48 hours on from the 2022 Grand National I would look at the size of the fences when the modifications were made the cause of the fences were replaced timber uh, went out and plastic came in and also the drops were leveled out and it was it, it was presented almost as if these things were all uh, part of the same issue. Now, I think that the drops, getting rid of the drops, although in the old days it was an incredible test of a horse, I think that these days we acknowledge that it's an unfair test of a horse. Uh, in terms of the core of the fences, I think, again, it was very much the right thing to do, that these, the, these fences are more forgiving. But in terms of the size, I'm not quite so sure. You know, a, a lot of the... Um, the, the the jumps fraternity at the time uh, that these modifications were made a lot of people will come out were apt to come out with the the uh, the phrase from road safety that says speed kills and i do feel that it's worth looking at the size of the fences if you look at saturday's race we're, we're used to thinking that well you need to hold a prominent position in the national well they went quick enough in this year's race that the horses who came from the back were the ones uh, that were favoured by the way that the race unfolded. Now, one of the factors in that is that the fences are significantly smaller than they used to be, and that as a result, the field goes faster at them. And I do think that it's worth looking at the size of the fences and making them a little bit bigger, because I think that that would temper the speed of the runners and I think it would make it a safer race. As I say, it's a difficult one to package that in terms of the non-racing public because they would say, oh, making the fence bigger, doesn't that make it more dangerous? Well, in this case, I would say that it's very likely that it might actually make the race safer. Dave, Greg Wood in The Guardian this morning has raised some interesting questions about how the news of the injured, subsequently fatally injured horses was communicated by uh, Aintree Racecourse on uh, Saturday evening and, and then into the into the night. From a reporter's point of view, what was your perspective? Right. Well, it was it was difficult for me in real time to appreciate what was going on because 
I wasn't able to look at it externally because I was in the press room um, typing copy. But just here are the nuts and bolts of it. That At 5.42, there was what is introduced as a preliminary update from Aintree Racecourse following the 174th Randox Grand National. And in this statement, it says, all horses returning to the stables open brackets, no fatalities, full point. Further assessment will be carried out where necessary, close brackets. And that gave rise to some celebratory tweets and some celebratory reaction. Um, the, I, I know that the, 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 the Aces uh, Twitter feed had, you know, excellent news and, and some hand clapping uh, emojis. Now, then, of course, at 7.33, it was communicated that, in fact, Discarama had suffered a pelvic injury that was untreatable uh, and that he had been put down on welfare grounds. This, this triggered something of a, uh, of a storm or certainly a, a negative reaction, let's put it that way, uh, on social media, whereby it was alleged that Aintree had, had, had essentially misled the public with the phrase no fatalities. They had to put out a statement at around 5.42 for the rights holders such as the BBC, Racing TV and ITV who were about to go off air and they obviously needed to clarify the situation with regard to the well-being of the 40 runners. Now it's interesting that ITV had got the information that Discarama was being treated and I think that Ed Chamberlain said that uh, there were concerns about Discarama. He didn't mention Eclair Sturf, although it may or may not be a coincidence that when ITV did their rerun of the race, the third, the third fence, which was the one where Eclair Sturf came down, was the only one that was omitted. So it seems that the information had had reached ITV. It, it didn't reach RTV and it didn't be, uh, reach the BBC either. And so I, I think it's it was not unfairly alleged on social media that this had given perhaps a falsely rosy position with regard to the well-being of the runners. Now, my take on this is that I, I have sympathy with the, the, the Jockey Club and Aintree Racecourse in the sense that they are putting out what are holding statements. But I think when you put out holding statements and you introduce them as preliminary updates, you give yourself the license to say, well, we're, we will update this further. And essentially with regard to the welfare of the horses, we're not out of the woods yet. As I think essentially Greg implies in you know, a typically excellent piece, he said that the, the key words were no fatalities. That could easily have been omitted from the statement if i just read it out to you without no fatalities um it reads as follows all horses returning to the stables further assessment will now be carried out where necessary well i think a, a fair inference from that is that right well all the horses are, are still alive as we speak but there are investigations and and uh, a few of them who we, we we still think might be in need of of some sort of treatment, either there are concerns over them. Oh. Um, I think that if they'd done that, then it wouldn't have given uh, rise to, to what turned out to be, obviously, sadly, premature celebrations. Uh, Dave, jockeys have been super sensitive, quite rightly, over the years, uh, not to damage the reputation of the Grand National by incurring whip bans. Um, when you're about to retire, getting a, a, a whip ban doesn't have quite the same 
consequences. I think this is particularly unfortunate in the the context of the uh, the the review of the use of the whip about about which we're going to hear more uh, in the autumn. This was the first whip ban on the winning horse since Jason Maguire and Bala Briggs started this whole process back in 2011. Jockeys, even those having their final ride, have a, a responsibility to their mounts above all. They also have a responsibility to the race. They have a responsibility to the sport as a whole. And for all uh, the, the the wonderful things that have been rightly said and written about the winning jockey. It was very unfortunate that uh, Sam Whaley Cohn was found wanting in that respect in the closing stages of the race. I don't really want to finish on a on a low note, and quite rightly, as you were saying, Dave, there will be so much warmth towards Sam Whaley Cohen and the buccaneering spirit with with which he's really attacked the race and attacked these fences over the years has been nothing short of of in, inspirational. And as was rightly pointed out a few times yesterday, if you read his life story, it will make anybody feel, even the hardest working amongst us, feel incredibly lazy. He's an amazingly committed uh, human being. And the great thing, as we saw on Saturday, was the ability of this race, uniquely amongst all horse races, really, to be a, a beacon for the community, to draw people together, to just revel in the sheer enjoyment of sport and I don't think there's anywhere where you see as many smiles on as many faces as at Aintree on Grand National Day. It hasn't quite marked the end of the jump season either in England or in Ireland. We've of course got Punchestown to come. That'll be a fantastic festival and Willie Mullins will be having all his big guns out in force again. We've got the end of season finale at Sandown but really this is where the Blue Bloods, uh, the elite uh, thoroughbreds, the flat racing stars start to come to the fore. And this week uh, at Newmarket first and then at Newbury for the uh, Craven and Greenham fixtures, we're going to see some some fantastic horses. Uh, the Craven itself has rather come back to fashion. We're going to have a word about that in a few moments' time. The first of the key classic trials is the Nell Gwynn Stakes, which is run uh, at Newmarket this week. Uh, one of the favourites for the race at the moment is Cache, trained by George Bowie. She was a very busy two-year-old with some fantastic form to her name, and I've been speaking to her trainer. Uh, we'll see. Look, her, her work's been good. She's she's not been overtrained for the race. It's a long year, but... Um... Yeah, look, she's in super shape and, and she loves the track, which is obviously a big big help. How much of an advantage do you think it is for you that you were able to give her eight runs as a, as a juvenile and she seemed to be able to take her racing so well? Yeah, she, she did take it very well. She had a break in the middle of the summer and um, was able to peak in, in Del Mar, which was obviously great for, great for us, great for high clear. And, and I think, you know, it's shown that she's, you know, she's a high-class filly. You look at your form, you were fourth behind Pizza Bianca in Del Mar, you were third behind the brilliant in Spiral in the in the in the, the Phillies Mile. You were you were second behind Hello You prior to that in the Rock Fell. You reoppose Hello You. What makes you think you can get the better of her? I think we've beaten a length and a half in the Rock Fell by Hello You and, and we get three pounds this time round. So um Look, it's 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 a it's a pretty close run thing. We're we're pretty level on the official ratings, and um, we'll see. I'd I'd say they're they're ready to rock and roll, and, and hopefully we can give it a good shake up. And George, you've got a couple of interesting um, maidens entered: Bojink and, and Cloud Flyer in the in the maiden at Newmarket. Can we give either of those a chance? Yeah, I think um, the Gallagher Gold filly and Nick Bradley's is is pretty straight. She's um, she's done plenty of work at home and. 
and looks like she's ready to go. William Buick rides, and, and he sat on her the other morning and, and was pleased with her. So look, she'll jump and travel, and she knows her job to a certain degree. But she'll, you know, she'll come forward for it in a way that we want her to. You know, she's she came from Ireland. She was at Roger Callahan's at Tally Ho, and, and he did a good job with her. And, and she's come here sort of with a with a certain level of know-how, but she will improve for it. The other horse, Cloudfly. You don't see many fast net rocks out this early in their career, running as a two-year-olds over five furlongs, and ridden by Davison de Barros. Tell me more. Uh, yeah, she's she's actually bred sort of how the Australians would have bred fast net rock. You know, she's out of a, a speedier mare, and she wasn't obvious at the sale, but she's come to home quite quickly, and Davison works for me, and you know, he's... He's uh, he's ridden winners all around the world, and he's had a couple of spins around Kempton for me so far. And look, it's nice to nice to give him a, a ride on, you know, what's quite a big day. Yeah, so Dave Craven Week it is, and the Craven Stakes itself. We heard from Charlie Appleby last week. Native Trail, the first European Champion Juvenile since Czar in 1998 to run in the in the Craven Stakes as a prelude to a, a bid for the for the Guineas and. Appleby is making the Craven trendy again. Master of the Seas won it last year. His subsequent derby winner, Massa, routed the field, including Roaring Lion, in it three years ago. Yeah, it's good to see. When I first got into racing, um, the Craven was was the the race that the, the Guinness favourite ran in. I remember, well, Agedal was beaten in it in 1987 behind Don't Forget Me, who, of course, went on to win the Guinness that year. I was at Newmarket the following year as a student when uh, Doyoon won that race by an impressive margin, and it was Warning uh, who was well beaten. So back in those days, you know, if if you were anybody with regard to uh, aspiring to win the 2000 Guineas, the Sagittarius 2000 Guineas, I think it was back in those days, or even General Accident, and then you ran in the Craven. Then there was the lull, and as we know, these things are cyclical, and it looks as though this race is on the way back, which I think is great news. Um, Native Trail, of course, escapes a penalty in this race, and he's got those two Group 1 victories to show for his juvenile campaign. He'll start a short price here, certainly a long odds-on favourite for Charlie Appleby and Will Buick. be interesting to see how he gets on. Many people, of course, myself included, think that Charlie Appleby probably does train the 2000 Guineas winner, but that it's Caribus, the horse who was successful on uh, that uh, the, the big money Dali uh, juvenile card. Sorry, not the, not the juvenile card exclusively, but the one that had the autumn stakes and the uh, Dewhurst stakes on it. Um, interesting, we might see Claymore as well in, in this race. This horse was a, an impressive winner first time up for Jane Chapelheim, who now has a, a, a grade one victory under her belt, courtesy of Saffron Beach. But this will all be, this will be all about Native Trail. He, he'll be the long odds on favourite. And there'll be some long faces in the Godolphin camp if he fails to make a win winning return in what looks a resurgent Craven State. And thoughts of the, the Grand National will be as far from your mind as possible when this morning uh, two-year-old Breezers put, are put through their paces alongside the Roly Mile and the Craven Breeze Up sale takes place at Tattersall's at Park Paddocks uh, beginning tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, always attracts or seeks to attract a strong international crowd. Joe Miller, who works for the Kern Lillingston Agency, is a visitor to the Craven Breeze Ups for the first time. Joe's with me now. What's prompted this, Joe? Well, we've we've done all the other Tattersall sales. We come to the horses and training sale every year. 
we come to the December sale every year and we've had quite a bit of success, I think, at, uh, you know, buying at Tats. And, um, you know, the U.S. market is, it's, it's awfully expensive to buy the ones you really like there. Um, and, you know, we're, we just thought we'd, we, we, we would try something new. Tattersalls always rolls out the red carpet for us. So, um, you know, we thought we'd give it a try. I mean, there were a lot of good horses to come out of the Craven sale last year. So, you know, we, uh, we thought there might be an opportunity and I thought we'd try, uh, just try something new. Um, for those who aren't familiar, what would you say is the key difference between a more European style horses in training sale or two year olds in, in training sale and, a and the equivalent in the, in the U S how, how would they breeze differently? What sort of type of horse would, would you see at each of them? Well, you know, I'll probably, I'll probably learn a whole lot this week because this is really the first I've sold horses here at the Tattersall's freeze up sale before, um, in partnership with some consigners, but I've, this is my first time buying out of this sale. Um, but, um, you know, in America, you know, it's really all about speed. You're looking for the freakishly fast workouts. You're looking for the nine and fours, the 10 flats, uh, the 20 and change workouts where here, I think we're just trying to find horses that are very good movers that might appreciate firm ground. Um, our, our horses, although they may stay here and, um, you know, possibly have a run or two over here to try to take advantage of the Craven breeze up bonus that Tattersalls is offering. Um, ultimately they're going to end up in America and, uh, you know, we're looking for firm ground horses to bring to California. Do you see that as a, as a sort of nice trajectory for a horse to have their sort of grounding done in Europe and then get the money when they're sort of ready made by going to the States in the sort of old Judmont Bobby Frankel mold? Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, a, a lot of what we've done over the years is buying horses in training, um, you know, that are two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds over um, from England and Ireland and, and, and brought them to America. So, you know, this is just an attempt of a, for us just to try to maybe get in a little bit sooner, uh, maybe even at a little lower price point than what we're having to spend on proven horses and try something new. I think, you know, the hor- young horses getting their start over here, just a bit easier on them. Um, and usually that translates into us getting sounder horses down the road in the U.S. Interesting. Uh, presumably, then, you are looking for a certain type when they breeze as well. You're not going to want something with a big roundy-poundy action, are you? <laughs> no, I think that, uh, I think you know, we, those are probably not going to work for us. But, you know, luckily the ground is is going to be good or maybe even on the quick side tomorrow for the for the breeze up, for the breeze show. So, you know, I think we're going to be able to, to to find plenty that we like, and you know, and we should easily be able to knock the the soft ground horses off our list too. So, who are you coming with? Who are you buying for? And and just tell me a little bit bit about them. Yeah, so we've got uh, Red Baron Barn and Rancho Temescal, who've been uh, good supporters of the Tattersall sales the last few years. That's uh, Jed and Tim Cohen. It's a father son team. They've been racing out in California for quite a few years now, and. They've had a lot of good horses, um, a lot of good ones from Europe, but they've had some, you know, plenty of other good dirt horses. Um, they've been kind of one of the leading owners in California the last few years. So it's myself and Edward Freeman, who is a trainer out in California. He's here with us as well. And, and Tim Cohen, uh, Tim Cohen was in Dubai to see his horse, Dr. Schivel run in the sprint. And he's kind of stuck around uh, Europe for an extra week and a half to come to the sale.
All right, there were three key Kentucky Derby trials. This is where it starts hotting up over the weekend. One at Santa Anita, one at Aqueduct, one at Keeneland. Matt Bernier's with me, NBC analyst. Matt, you drew the, well, I don't know. I'm not going to say short straw. Maybe it was the long straw. You got you got Aqueduct. Um, so, so tell me first of all about uh, your trial at Wood Memorial. Uh, lovely Aqueduct. Who, who doesn't love a good run at the Big A? Look, it was a really impressive effort from Mo Donegal to run down early voting, who was loose on the lead gets up in the shadow of the wire the thing about mo donegal has always been he is a mile and a quarter horse through and through and for him to get the points that he needs to get into the kentucky derby i think you have to look at him now and say there's a real chance that he's a main player the first saturday in may uh and as far as early voting is concerned you're always dangerous when you've got speed i don't know that i love him as a derby prospect but the complexion of the race changed quite a bit yesterday where now maybe there isn't a ton of speed so who knows? Uh, I think both of those horses are quality, and I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we heard from them again down the road. All right. So, Mo Donegal, you're being quite you're being quite positive about the the Wood Memorial. Are you as positive about the nine furlong bluegrass stakes at Keeneland that saw uh, a victory for the Chad Brown trained Zandon? Brown has been second in a Derby before, but he's not yet won one. Yeah, very much so. I mean, this is a very tepid pace set early on, and Zandon basically came from last rounding the far turn. Brilliant ride from Flavian Pratt, weaving ways through traffic. When the horse got out into the clear down the lane, he kicked away emphatically, and he beat a good horse and smile happy. Uh, the horses that ran second and third in the Risen Star to Epicenter back in February at the fairgrounds. So another race that the top two horses, I think they both fit among the Derby contenders. Zandon, my only concern with him, and you can say the same thing about Mo Donegal, Neither of them are blessed with early speed. So we've seen it time and time again. The Kentucky Derby, so much of it is about trip. If you get lucky, they could certainly come with a run. But it's worth noting, they're going to be coming from a little ways out of it if they're going to be able to get the job done. I briefly nose on a couple of human interest stories there. I touched on Chad Brown, not won a Kentucky Derby yet. How much do you think that is itching him? Well, I mean, given everything that Chad's won here in the United States, it feels like that is sort of the... The crowning achievement, and I think the fact that he's got a horse like Zandon, who he's been very high on from day one, I think this is one that if he doesn't win, it'll probably eat away at him a little bit because it feels like he is primed and ready to roll when they get down there to Louisville. And Flavian Pratt right up there in our TRC jockey rankings. He's moved his tack from California. Um, this is a really significant grade one success for him. How big an impact is he going to make on East Coast racing this year? Oh, massive. I mean, he's the kind of rider that, especially if he's going to be riding for Chad Brown rather, rather frequently, he's going to have every opportunity to get the job done. He's got brilliant rides. He's got brilliant horses. And I think, unfortunately for him, with the way everything has gone in Southern California recently, he hasn't really been able to shine because the fields have been rather small. And I don't want to say he's head and shoulders the best in California, but he kind of was for a little while. Now he'll be tested against some of the best riders in the world, especially in New York over the summer. Uh, I think he's got a big chance to be one of the main players at Saratoga and Belmont. All right, let's head to California then for the Run Happy Santa Anita Derby. Uh, we've saved certainly the most contentious story till last. Tabor was the winner on just his second start, a son of this extraordinary sophomore stallion, the brilliant gun runner, Mike Smith. I mean, I've given up trying to work out how old Mike Smith is now, but the real story is this is one of the horses that's left the suspended Baffert's to join Baffert's former assistant, Tim Yakteen, for Medina Spirit and Country Grammar's owner, Amir Zidane. What did you make of the performance, first of all? 
it's hard to put into context how impressive this horse has been in his first two lifetime starts. Keep in mind, he hadn't even debuted six weeks ago. He ran six furlongs at Santa Anita, ran a hole in the wind, and then they stretch him out to nine against two legitimately fast runners in Forbidden Kingdom of Messier, and he humbled both of them. Uh, he earned a 101 buyer speed figure on top of the 103 he earned in his career debut. I think there's a real case to be made that he's the most talented three-year-old of this crop. The concern becomes, are you squeezing the lemon dry in a really short amount of time? He's going to go from six furlongs to nine furlongs to ten furlongs in four weeks' time. Boy, that's, that's a lot to ask for any horse. Maybe he's genuinely a super horse. I would just be very, very worried that we're asking so much of this horse in such a short amount of time. But the performance itself uh, was nothing short of brilliant. He, he's an exceptional talent. NBC's Matt Bernier there with a look at the three key Kentucky Derby trials that took place over the weekend. I know we spend a disproportionate amount of time talking about prize money in various parts of the world, or lack thereof sometimes in the UK on this podcast, but we always like to bring you good news uh, where it exists, and there is some good news from the British European Breeders' Fund, particularly in terms of incentivising two-year-olds, and particularly some of those later developing two-year-olds, with some money that is in the sport that is being resourced in a, a particular way. The chairman of the British European Breeders' Fund is Simon Sweeting, who you'll know from Overbury Stud, and he's with me now. Simon, just explain where the money's come from and what we're doing with it. Hi, Nick. The money comes from stallion owners who put a proportion of their annual income into a fund uh, for the British uh, European Breeders Fund. And that is then siphoned back into racing uh, and prizes. And it's put into races to top up the, the minimum value of a race. So we're not uh, we're not giving money so that race courses can use less of their money in prize money it, it tops up the prize money that the race courses are giving out okay so the obvious question is why are you doing this what where is the need in your opinion well we're, we're looking to give some encouragement to what you might call commercially priced or also horses by commercially priced stallions middle market middle market horses to give them an extra chance to for, for a big prize at the end of the year there are qualifiers throughout the year any restricted novice or maiden race with an ebf tag on it uh, if you run in the first six in one of those you qualify for a final there's a phillies final in september at goodwood Colts final in September at York and there is a £100,000 total prize fund in each of those so Goodwood and York have very kindly matched our £100,000 contribution to those uh, so it's a good prize um, for horses that are that are running through the season and, and they can be aimed to that if, if the owners and, and trainers are keen to take it up and I'm, I'm sure they will and the hope is obviously that somebody who, who wins a, a good pot at the end of the year that time just before the yearling sales will be encouraged to, to go and reinvest it. The other thing is there aren't going to be any, um, it, I mean it's all standard entry fees, there's no early closing fees, no, no early forfeits or anything like that so it's all standard costs to get in, uh, kept at a commercial or sorry a sensible price uh, but a, you know a very substantial prize pot at the end of it. Uh, so they're running at Goodwood and York, and it's at the back end of the season. And am I right in thinking they're both over seven furlongs? They're both over seven furlongs, yep, and for restricted and uh, novice novice maiden uh, horses. And as I say, yes, the first six for, for any of those EBF races throughout the year will qualify for each of these races. And, and this sort of ties in with something that you've been doing for a number of years, which is, I'm guessing, to try and encourage 
you know, horses that maybe are slightly stouter in in pedigree. Is that is that right? Yes, we, we've had a, a, a future stairs program since 2015 now. So the dam or the sire of these horses need to have won at 10 furlongs or above. We put money into 12 races throughout, or we will be putting money into 12 races this year. And we've, we've produced 62 black type horses from this series. And, and that would include Cracksman, Hurricane Lane and Stradivarius. So I think it's been a very, very successful program and one that we're keen to carry on with. And I know you like horses at all ends of the stamina spectrum. And for, for all the success you've had with, with staying stallions, um, our dad was brilliant for you last year. How satisfying was it to get off the mark with the first two-year-old from his second crop, always the tricky second album? Absolutely. That was, uh, I wouldn't call it a relief because we'd, we'd heard word about uh, that horse. And, you know, obviously it was it was great that he won a decent race in good style um so hopefully we can have a few more that's just getting off the mark off the mark but hopefully it's going to be a good season for him well thanks to all my guests today david yates is still with me dave we can't go without uh, wishing uh, all the very best to major charlie o'shea amateur rider who took a horrendous fall at wincanton yesterday and was airlifted to south meads hospital uh, conscious uh, we learn from clerk of the course daniel cooper when airlifted and we we await a further update from the interjockeys fund Yes, indeed. Our best wishes go uh, to Major Charlie O'Shea. As you say, he was unseated in the penultimate race, the Hunter's Chase. Um, he was treated at the track and then airlifted. There was a statement from Wincanton last evening that read, following assessment by the expert medical team on course, Charlie O'Shea was conscious and transported to Southmead Hospital. We extend our best wishes to Charlie. Further updates, as you mentioned, will be provided by the PJA as soon as possible. Yeah, it, it looked uh, uh, a, a very nasty incident that and it clearly, although he was conscious, uh, Major O'Shea was uh, taken off uh, to hospital for, for further treatment. So, you know, it, obviously we, we extend him our, our very best wishes and hope that there is some positive news to come from that in the coming day or two. And can you send uh, the NLD listeners home uh, with a winning tip today after they enjoyed Lydia's uh, run through of Chance or no chance the other day where both she and I summarily dismissed the chances of Noble Yates. They need you to apply some balm to those um, inflicted wounds. I wouldn't blame you for dismissing Noble Yates or Lydia indeed uh, in the the game of chance or no chance. Um, it's my family name and nobody managed to back the seven-year-old on Saturday. Um, like the Grand National, the 450 at Pontefract uh, places pretty unique demands on its participants it's a two mile five furlong handicap conditions certainly soon seem to suit uh, weems point who's won this race uh, twice before including 12 months ago and i hope that phil kirby's 10 year old can do so again here 450 race at pontefract selection is number four weems point all right, Dave, thanks so much. Thank you for listening once again. Uh, start of a brand new week. We'll be talking all about the classics during the course of this week. That was Monday the 11th. Hope you enjoyed our reflections on what's happened over the weekend, particularly the Grand National. And don't forget, if you do enjoy this podcast, please do tell your friends, give us a review on any of your podcast platforms and give us a rating while you're at it. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, 
and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.